Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Darsh Shah. And I'm Dr. Ultima Shraja. And welcome to Medicine Redefined. A podcast where we will explore the often overlooked but necessary components of health, what we consider to be the fundamentals. We will investigate topics and practices that can give you and your patients the best chance to optimize a healthy lifestyle. It's time to move the needle forward and put the health back in healthcare. Our guest today is Dr. Jim Eubanks, a board-certified physiatrist and newly minted attending at the Medical University of South Carolina. Dr. Eubanks was a former chiropractor, and he graduated from the Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina. He received his medical degree from the Brody School of Medicine at East Carolina University, and then graduated with distinction in research. He completed his residency in physical medicine and rehabilitation at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, where he served as academic chief resident, and then he subsequently completed a fellowship in spine and musculoskeletal medicine, as well as health policy at UPMC. If you went back to our previous episode, 121, Christopher Standard was actually the mentor and program director for Dr. Eubanks. It's safe to say that Dr. Eubanks is an emerging leader in the field of PMNR, especially when it comes to spine care. He serves on AAPMNR's Innovative Payment and Practice Models Committee. He is currently involved in leadership roles at the American Association of Neuromuscular and Electrodiagnostic Medicine, and he serves on the editorial board of PMNR. He was recently selected as a recipient of the NASA's 20 Under 40 Award. Jim goes through a lot of things today when we talk about the biopsychosocial model of back pain. For those of you that may not know, back pain is one of the most common complaints we see in the clinic and in the hospital. Almost everyone deals with it at some point in their lifetime, whether it's transient or whether it's chronic. Back pain can be very complex. And so we talk with Jim about the things that we can do to interview patients. How do we think about different models and frameworks? We also discuss medications like gabapentin and the risks that many people suffer because we so overly prescribe. And interestingly, we start with Jim's perspective on Buddhism and how he learned mindfulness and how he uses the concepts in his own practice. We talk about a lot, so let's get to it. Enjoy the episode. All right, listeners, Jim Eubanks is here across the screen with me and Altamash. Uh, for the listeners that don't know, I've known I've known you, Jim, for about four years now. Coming up on four years, yeah. Uh, I was a fourth, right. I was a fourth year medical student um, rotating at UPMC, where you were a second year resident. And then, you know, since then we've kind of kept in contact, helped you out on some PMR recap ventures, met you at some conferences as well. So appreciate you making the effort, man, staying in touch, and uh, it's awesome to have you on here for the podcast. It's great to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity and look forward to chatting with you guys. Yeah, I think an interesting place to start would be your Buddhist learnings. And, you know, for those that don't know, I kind of did a little bit of deep dive on you, Jim, and I saw that you did a podcast probably back in around 2013, um, talking mm-hmm. about how you kind of delved into Buddhism, how you took it up as a practice. You've, you've always been interested in kind of world religions. Take me through a little bit about how you got into Buddhism and are you still practice, practicing it today? Yeah, great question. So uh, the way I got into that, actually, back when I was 16, I I started playing lacrosse um, in high school and wanted to sort of complement my physical training with with some mental training. And so I started studying mindfulness meditation. And um, that was really early on, obviously. Um, 
as a, as a 16 year old. And so, um, by the time I was 17, I developed, um, a, a rather acute presentation of, um, an illness that required emergent surgery and, um, a number of hospitalizations after that point. And so I found myself relying on some of that training for health reasons. Right. And, um, I, I grappled with these questions about, you know, why this kind of thing happened to me, but bigger, why it happened at all. And, um, in particular to people who had less family support resources, um, than myself. Um, and so during all of that time in the hospital, I was there continuously for over 16 days at one point. And, um, you know, I, I contemplated some of the big questions of life and the mindfulness training stood out uh, as a tool to help me during that period. Um, I continued studying um, mindfulness meditation and sort of dived into the historical um, development of mindfulness a lot more and had a number of really important people um, who had applied it very pragmatically, um, including David Shainer, who is a PhD and was the chair of the philosophy department at Furman University, where I was um, an undergrad. And uh, he and I became very close. In fact, we stay in touch to this day and, and speak frequently. And he's planning to come visit me uh, when I uh, moved to Charleston pretty soon. Um, he was at my wedding. And so he applied it in business settings. Um, so he was a pretty high level um, uh, key Aikido practitioner and studied in Japan for a while and then started applying a lot of those um, principles to business. And so he worked with a number of major companies, including Gillette and um, and uh, companies all over the U.S., and so through that, I started to incorporate some of that um, into healthcare and have continued to do so, especially with chronic pain. Why did you feel like mental training was necessary along with the physical aspect? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, in order to optimize the physical training, I felt like the mental element was essential. Um, and that is to stay with those more challenging, uh, physical, uh, moments, right. Where we're pushing ourselves further than we are perhaps used to and comfortable with. And so preparing ourselves mentally, um, and having the fortitude to persist in the face of challenge uh, was the application that I was after at that time. And again, I applied it to my health endeavors. How old were you at this time when you came to that realization? Yeah. I mean, so this was, the, the, I started toiling with this when I was 17. So it was February of my senior year of high school when I was preparing to start lacrosse practice actually for that season and, uh, was really catapulted, um, into this uh, urgent health situation 
where I required surgery and surgeons at the time in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I was, um, were consulting with surgeons in Texas and, you know, trying to gather information about how to handle my situation. Um, and so it was pretty scary, right? Especially as a 17 year old. And that really framed a lot of my thinking, not only about life, but, um, healthcare. And so that's when I, really started to develop an interest in healthcare, um, even though I ultimately traveled on this rather long, circuitous pathway to get there. Yeah. And so you mentioned now the most recent application, the lessons that you've extracted from that journey of kind of, you know, building upon mindfulness is you've started applying them to your chronic pain population, right? And I mentioned to you offline a couple of weeks ago, I had a lengthy and informative conversation with your, your program director, where we're talking about essentially what are the things that we're getting wrong, which seems to be a lot, right? Hence, hence the podcast, hence the inception of the podcast, but we're also always interested in about how can we do it better? I know you have some, some strong feelings about a lot of things and, and we'll touch on some of them, but as we were just chatting about briefly is one of the, the most prevalent issues in musculoskeletal medicine, which of course we have to talk about because we're three physiatrists sitting in a room here. <laughs> is is back pain, right? Yeah. And I'm so happy you brought up the importance of mental training along with the physical training. And I think that's a good segue in talking about just chronic pain and back pain in general, because almost every patient that I see uh, when we, we have chronic pain in nature, right? This is kind of where we start. Uh, like I usually write down on a board I'll have, you know, we have the physical component, the emotional component, which you can interchange with psychological if you'd like. And you have the social component as well. You know, maybe you have a slightly different view of it. And then within that, right, we can branch out and look at different facets of that and how we can address those three things. But we do have to address those three things. I have the conversation. We always talk about the physical component. Everybody does. That's the old biostructural model, right? Mm-hmm. And the newer model, the biopsychosocial model, which we talked about time and time again. Still, some people who don't really understand it and anybody who does understand it doesn't know how to apply it, right? That's There's a big gap in that. So with that long-winded uh, of a stage that I've kind of set is talk a little bit about how that specifically the mental training, the mindfulness that you've kind of expanded upon over the last decade or so, that's helping you specifically with this difficult population of chronic pain. And maybe we could just to keep it a little bit simpler for people to follow along, just talk about back pain. And so I think what you're asking is, you know, how do I import that understanding and realization of the importance of mental training or the mental um, dimension into my care of patients with back pain. And so I think, you know, first of all, it's, it's back pain is very challenging because it's hard to say much that's new about back pain right now, right? We have lots of research looking at back pain and we we struggle with um, articulating it in different ways than we've been doing for years now. Um, but I think one of the ways that, you know, we have to think about it is that, you know, there are folks with structural issues, very specific problems that cause them pain. At the same time, Anyone who's had pain, especially back pain for a long time, 
has accumulated this framework through which they try to understand it and deal with it. And clinicians, you know, physiatrists and others who deal with this have a hard time reconciling both of those things at the same time, because it's not enough to just say, you know, how's your sleep? Oh, your sleep's not bad. You need to do better with your sleep hygiene, right? Like, like it's not enough to do that. We have to really engage with behavioral change and behavioral change is hard. Identifying potential pain generators has become relatively easy for us. We do it a lot. We, you know, have advanced imaging and we identify targets. Um, and we do that rather well in our training. But the thing that we still don't do well is reconcile that information with the overlay for the patient that is the psychological or psycho-emotional um, side of things, uh, the sociological side of things, those different layers that create the experience the patient has, right, as a, let's say, person with back pain. Um, so for me, my background and training allows me, first of all, to relate to patients, right, because I understand why those things are important as someone who has suffered chronic pain and someone who has suffered from acute pain. And I think that relationship building with patients um, allows me to break down some of those barriers that might be present that need to be addressed. And so when I, one of the things um, that I've really gain from fellowship, the fellowship that I do, is trying to better understand how to identify the different types of motivators in a person's life, right? Like what makes them tick? What makes them get up every day? Um, why do they want to get better? Um, and identifying that is critical to the care plan that I will develop with them. In, you know, implicit to all of that is that psychological dimension, you know, how they think about it, um, how they prioritize, um, how they reconcile challenges, all of that matters. And um, that's part of what I try to use, you know, from my own experience um, with, for, for example, the mindfulness background um, as I apply it in the clinic. I just wanted to follow up with that, Jim. Um, you know, oftentimes when you bring up the words mental, mind, psycho, uh, psychological to patients, especially with pain, they kind of resist, right? They'll back away, they'll shut off. What's your conversation like with patients when you try to delve into the psychosocial components, when you try to teach them about different ways of mindfulness training? Yeah, great question. So it's a lot like the label non-specific low back pain. You know, we don't talk to patients um, and tell them that they have non-specific low back pain, right? Like that's a label we use as physicians or researchers. Um, the way we talk to patients is much more 
practical and, and kind of mundane and down to earth for the intentional reasons that it relates better with them. And so when I talk to patients about, you know, the psychological aspects, it's more in ways that allows them to explain themselves. Uh, it's very open-ended. And so I might um, explore what their values are or what their goals are for clinic, right? Like we would always ask, what can we do for you? You know, that's sort of an opener for us um, in, in the fellowship and the kind of spine program I'm in. And so we don't say, where's your pain, right? We say, how can we help you? And so setting the stage uh, for exploration is more important than trying to pin down some specific type of information um, from the patient in the context of, you know, exploring some of the psychosocial dimensions. Um, and so I need to know what's important to them in life. What is an obstacle for them in life? You know, in other words, what's going to be the barriers for us succeeding as a clinical team and what's going to be the hangup uh, when I try to put together an effective care plan for them. Um, to know that information, I just need to prompt them in an open-ended manner. And usually that information reveals itself pretty readily. Yeah, I think the barriers are key, right? I mean, I'm on consult rotation. That's the one thing you constantly learn is, you know, what are the things that are going to prevent somebody from executing the plan, right? I think that's something as providers we don't often think about. You talked about engaging with behavioral change. I've got that in quotes over here because I do think that that's, that has to be the theme of every single patient encounter when we're talking about somebody who has any type of chronic disability, right? And, and giving people agency over your pain, right? I think about an encounter I had earlier today where it was a consult patient coming in for quote unquote pain management. And they were just talking about how the pain is limiting every facet of this person's life, right? The, all the, the big components that we talked about, but it was always the pain is not allowing me to do this. The pain isn't this, the pain is, and we talked about why does the pain have so much power? You know, we just sat there and thought about that for a second, right? We're talking about, Hey, and, and this is an individual who is actually a, a retired uh, Navy officer, right? So highly functioning individual, 20 years in the Navy, very physically fit. Um, you know, of course, with that, you know, it's accumulated a ton of musculoskeletal injuries. And, and so rightfully, so a lot of surgeries, reason to have paid, quote unquote. Something occurred to me, though, when I was reflecting on that visit later on, right? You mentioned, maybe we're not doing a well enough job dealing that aspect. I think we're doing a terrible job. I think you're being very, very kind. You know, I think when it comes to finding the specific targets, like that's what we're trained to do through our training. And hey, look, quite frankly, that's really sexy stuff, right? Getting a needle in my hand, getting under ultrasound, stuff like that, that's a lot of fun, right? And and as I've cited before, like the, the evidence suggests that majority of the candidates that matriculate from residency to fellowship are going to musculoskeletal-based fellowships and not ones that are like your program. But what, what the thing that stuck out to me is that this individual had come to me with the expectation of pain management as in prescription management, right? Because their previous provider had discharged them for whatever reason. 
And when they made that intake appointment, they were given that information that this is what the expectation is going to be. So we spent 45 minutes, Jim, talking about all these other things about, you know, getting control of your life back and all that kind of at the end of the visit said, okay, what else can I do for you today? I was like, okay, so are you going to write the oxycodone? <laughs> and I almost chuckled inside and I was like, oh man, like where we didn't, we didn't get anywhere. Of course, probably the failure is, is mine in that regard, right? Something, and, and, and maybe it is, maybe it isn't, maybe I'm being too hard, but what I, what I couldn't help but think is like, when this person scheduled this appointment, what was the information that was given to this person, right? Because a lot of it is managing expectations. If you've been given, hey, this is what's going to happen at your first visit. And then the patient hasn't heard whatever I said for 20 minutes or whatever conversation we had, right? They're just waiting for, they have their own agenda, right? Somebody recently told me like, everybody's got an agenda and we have to align those agendas. And that's when we get to that therapeutic alliance that we talk about all the time. And so I think teaching the providers, the physicians, the trainees, like that's one aspect of it. But what about the ancillary staff, right? What about all these other checkpoints in the healthcare system where if that all isn't lined up and teed up, it's going to be really hard to get somebody to engage in behavioral change by the time they walk to your office. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so the ancillary staff is is a pretty critical component now, right? Because healthcare is a team sport. And we are able to do what we do because of our dependency on numerous other people, right, in different positions of importance. And it's interesting you bring this up because so the research work that I'm involved with is looking at prehabilitation for lumbar spinal stenosis surgery. And in prehabilitation, we are very dependent on aligning office staff and nursing and therapists and physicians and surgeons on the same page so that we can essentially carry the patient forward in an effective manner, right? Towards their surgery, which, you know, we hope is, is indicated for their condition and their recovery process. And so the successful implementation of a program like that requires the team to come together and understand each other's part in the process. Um, and so from a pain standpoint, for me to effectively address the behavior change that I think is important for someone who's had pain chronically I, re I require the expertise of others and I have to know what that expertise is and I have to know how to identify the people who can get that expertise to the patient. And then I have to be able to develop the relationships to effectively utilize the, those resources, right? And so a physiatrist is in that role. That's something that we train for um, from residency on inpatient rehab is a really great teaching ground for those concepts. Um, uh, increasingly we're seeing it in outpatient settings, but historically it isn't necessarily where it's excelled that is in outpatient settings. And so now we're carrying over many of the lessons, um, from inpatient care and, uh, multi and interdisciplinary pain 
programs into standard outpatient care in ways that I think are ultimately going to be better for patients. Um, and so I'm optimistic about that part. I think that, you know, as you alluded to earlier, there's a lot we do wrong in musculoskeletal medicine and we're very we're very bad scientists when it comes to musculoskeletal medicine. We're trying to play catch up with a number of other fields, but one of the areas of optimism to me is our uh, uh, evolution towards um, team-oriented problem solving. Absolutely, I think about Kelly Starrett, right? They Kelly and Julia Starrett. They recently put out a book. I think it's called "Built to Move," and I've been listening to him for a while, really. But lately, he's he's he talks a lot about how pain isn't a medical problem. And I think, you know, what he's trying to, to, to talk about, and, and Darsh, you can comment on this, is that, you know, everybody has to own, own their own pain. And it's not something that you can necessarily go to the, the medical system and say, help me get out of this, right? You have to be an active participant. In fact, a lot of times, you don't even need the medical system. I mean, how often, I mean, really, there are very few people on this earth who haven't experienced pain, but it's not every single time that you stub your toe or you have some pain that is transient that you end up seeking care. You're like, ah, I'm just going to rub some dirt on it, quote unquote, right? It's going to, it's going to, um, it's going to dissipate over time. But really it's that what's the thing that's turning into a chronic from an acute to a chronic process. And in those steps where it's turning from an acute to a chronic process, what are steps that one could take to prevent that from happening or mitigate the other chances of that happening? Right. So I think that's some of the, the process that he's talking about. Um, that I really like. But but I want to dig a little bit into this parasurgical care, the prehabilitation that you talk about for spinal stenosis. Maybe for, for people, elaborate a little bit on really what spinal stenosis is and how that is distinct from some other pathologies. I think people just really know sciatica, right? That's really what it comes down to. Uh, but some other key components and then what lessons have you guys been able to extract from the research that you're looking at and does it apply to other spine pathologies that are responsible for chronic pain or chronic back pain yeah great question so spinal stenosis is essentially narrowing of the central canal where the spinal cord and the cauda equina exists as well as the foramen where nerves exit that canal and it can happen at both or either place. Um, spinal stenosis is very common. It is age related. It is a degenerative process in most people. Um, we can more simply think about it as arthritis of the spine and the loss of spatial or structural integrity um, that compromises sensitive soft tissues like nerves. And so spinal stenosis leads to uh, typically pressure on nerves um, in ways that affects uh, good blood flow and oxygenation for the health of the nerve and thus can lead to pain. Sometimes it is um, uh, classically known as being um, intermittent and related to position. And so when someone is standing up, uh, we tend to close down the spinal canal and the foramen of the spine. And so it can put pressure or, or apply 
um, crushing forces onto nerves. And that's why people become symptomatic in that position. And then when they sit or flex like a sharp shopping cart sign, as we sometimes call it, um, then they are relieved of that neurogenic claudication. And so spinal stenosis is very common. Radiographic stenosis is more common than symptomatic stenosis. There is some discrepancy um, as to who has symptomatology when it comes to imaging. And so sometimes there's a mismatch between what we see in an MRI, for example, and what someone may experience. Um, that discrepancy has really gotten us into a lot of trouble because if you, for example, um, inject or operate based on radiographic findings and do not um, correspond the symptomatology of the patient, then naturally we may not get the result that we're aiming to get. Uh, and so a very small subset of people who have stenosis have such a relentless version of it that they end up on the pathway towards surgery. And so surgery um, can open up the space that has been lost um, and allow nerves, uh, at least theoretically, to have more um, space. Um, and we call that decompression. And so often with decompression in an older spine, um, we will also fuse it for improved stability of the spine. And so that's really what we're talking about is surgery for people who have severe stenosis that um, has usually been going on for a long time chronically. This is not an acute process and um, have tried conservative measures and have not been successful with conservative management. And so what happens is that a lot of these folks, because it's a chronic process, um, have developed, you know, beliefs and behaviors around their stenosis to try to adapt because patients ultimately make decisions and change their behavior to adapt, hopefully more successfully to what they're confronted with. Right. And so let's say that we have someone who for five or more years has been living a certain way, concerned that you know, their spine is vulnerable and weak and concerned that if they move the wrong way, they may cause pain or injury to themselves, or they've been told this by other clinicians, which is often the case. And uh, they're, they're generally deconditioned because of this as well. So you take someone like that and you sign them up for surgery and you do the surgery, but you don't address any of these multi-year behavioral changes, what we see is that a much larger than anticipated number of patients don't do well with surgery. There is always the possibility that surgery is not as effective biomedically as we would like it to be, right? So I have to give that caveat here. However, additionally, there is the concern that behavior change is not an automatic process just because someone undergoes an intervention. And this is what we're trying to do. So with prehabilitation or prehab, or more specifically in our case, we're studying educational interventions. And so we call it 
um, preoperative spinal education specific to lumbar spinal stenosis. And um, what we're doing with this um, multimodal approach is trying to equip patients before surgery with ways of shifting their thinking and ways of shifting their behaviors so that they're more prepared to change and adapt after the surgery takes place. And the thing that's really important here is that it's, it's, it's based on adult learning theory, which adult learning theory is pretty simply, um, or maybe most simply thought of as uh, re repeating information over time, right? So that we retain it, okay? And what we're doing is we're creating a common language across staff and across the clinical um, participants so that they're saying the same things and reiterating the same messaging. And um, we are ensuring that patients are using certain types of information as their resources and not relying on things that maybe they're being told by a neighbor or maybe they're being told by a family member or maybe they're Googling online or asking ChatGPT now. <laughs> Right. We're trying to make sure that we give them high quality information that we think at least as a, you know, team of experts um, is evidence based. And um, we've so far in our pilot study had enough success with this. And we think that we have a positive signal to proceed with um, a larger trial. And so that's that's kind of where things are heading ultimately. I want to be clear for the people, because I think often when trainees, providers read notes, they'll say, oh, you know, make sure you follow a good spine hygiene, some some sort. And I, I think that's not what you're saying, right? That's kind of what you were talking about when people are like, hey, don't move this way. Make sure you have good posture and that things that we're going to talk about. Mm -hmm. But can you, j just so I have a clear understanding, can you walk me through what something like that might look like? Like, can we, can we do some role play here? And if I'm pretending to, let's just say I'm, I'm some, that individual who has, you know, failed some of the conservative approach. I'm kind of at the end of the road, so to speak. And I'm, I'm really headed for surgery and I come have a pre-surgical consultation with you. And what are some of the key questions, some of the, that you will ask to get an understanding of how, you know, where, where my um, mindset is in terms of, my pain, um, and how would you help shift that to, um, to be better educated coming out of surgery so my recovery is better? Yeah, so we, we do use certain um, patient-reported outcomes or PROs, um, including the PROMISE scores. So PROMISE is an NIH-developed um, standardized uh, questionnaire that can assess different domains. So anxiety, depression, um, kinesiophobia, things like that. And so we'll, we'll use that information to help guide us. But most simply, um, this is a matter of interviewing the patient appropriately, right? This is a basic skill that we should all develop as residents. But interviewing patients to understand what their thinking is and what their thought process is, um, asking them if they're afraid of movement 
or if they've been told that certain types of movement is bad for them, those are things we must do. There's really no way around it. And, um, you know, when we understand what their thinking is, we can develop appropriate interventions. And so some people may simply be misinformed, right? That is that someone told them not to bend over too far because it was bad for them. They have never bent over and had a bad thing happen to them, but they were told not to do it. And so they stopped doing it, right? That kind of person just needs the right information. There are others who feel that bending over causes them harm and perhaps have done it, right? And they've experienced pain. And so therefore they don't do it because they know from direct experience or from uh, personal experience that bending over causes them pain. And so that person needs more uh, of like a, an exposure therapy approach, for example, than just information, right? Like information is probably not going to do it for them. They need an actual training program that will help them progress from where they are right now through the uncomfortable sensations of bending until they get to a point where they're desensitized enough that they can do it in daily life, right? And they're not incapacitated from it. So understanding the person's thinking is critical to developing the right kind of intervention for them. Um, and likewise, that may change our medical treatments. So a person who's actually, you know, actually experiencing active pain is different from someone who is just fearful that they might experience pain, right? So I'm not going to over-medicate someone who's not in pain and is just concerned about it, um, but someone who's having acute pain uh, because they have, you know, compressed L3 nerve root, for example, um, is going to be different. Yeah. yeah, it's funny. Uh, you talk about residents teaching them in an interview to get the thought process, right? It, it, it's completely different than what throughout medical school we're trained, right? It's like the, the mnemonic that I learned was OPPQRST, right? You've got mm -hmm. old charts, clodiers, people are trying to get just so you can get the key facts, which are really all geared for billing. Fortunately, that's mm -hmm. not the case, at least for outpatient medicine anymore. But still, that's that's what we're teaching them. There is some good to that, right? Having worked with medical students that, that the are, these are key components to, hey, what makes your pain better? What makes your pain worse? But again, it's not a checkbox thing, right? It's like about having a conversation and really understanding where that person's, you know, um, mental, like what mental space they're in. It's interesting you, you brought up the, the movement and the thoughts of movement. You know, I, if I think about circa 2018, when I had my true first time, like a true ridiculous uh, symptoms like after a very long drive where I had an S1 radiculopathy, couldn't sit for five minutes, right? With that paresthesis constantly and just excruciating pain. And, you know, even starting things started going to the groin. And of course, like a, an avid, um, you know, enthusiastic old uh, fitness person and strength and conditioning world, just pick up Stu McGill's work, right? I know you're familiar with his stuff. And I read the book Back Mechanic front to back in like two days. And then I'm doing everything in neutral spine, right? Doing my bird dogs, doing my crunch, doing my lateral planks. And he even talks about how when you're walking, you should be walking with that spine stiffness, intra-abdominal pressure. And then you try to do that. And it's like, this is the most ridiculous thing in the world because this is not, this is not pragmatic. And I hear that word that you used with one of your colleagues at that approach. This is not, you can't do that and, and, and live day to day and function in a normal society. And 
finally, I went to a, a physical therapist who I had been following for quite some time in, in PA. And the first thing he had me doing is like, you know, after doing an assessment, he was like, all right, we're going to get you to squat. And we're going to let that lumbar spine round all the way at the bottom. And I just looked at him, big eyes. I was like, how dare you? You know, what do you mean? Like, I'm just going to let that round, right? We can't let that butt wick happen. And I think it's just so important for us to realize that this pendulum swings back and forth, right? And I think at that, at this point, rather, uh, I'd, I'd want to get your thoughts on, on posture. I think when it comes to this pendulum swinging in fitness industry and pain, things do go back and forth. And when I was coming up and we were talking a lot about how like posture really, really influences your pain. And then over time, you're getting everybody's just doing postural correction stuff, right? We're doing prehab stuff in your workouts. Like I'm trying to hit the, the YTLs like crazy, trying to hit the rhomboids like crazy, try to correct that thoracic kyphosis, which is really normal. Um, and, and you're trying to fix that. And then over time, the conversation shifts to, oh, doesn't affect pain whatsoever. And I'm not sure that's true either. Like much like anything else, you know, it's somewhere in the middle. But I'd love to give you the floor here and and kind of get your thoughts on where you are in that conversation. And 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 uh, I see you smiling, so I'm excited to to see what you're going to say. Yeah, it's unfortunate that that you know apparent radicalism is what gets people's attention. So you know when the pendulum's over here, it's if someone says something over here, then that gets the attention, and so things start to swing that way, and then that's normal and there's nothing new under the sun. And so then someone says something back over here and we start moving. That's, that's how pain management has been for decades, right? Nothing new under the sun. I mean, if you study the history of it all, um, it's really funny to me. I saw recently that like ultrasound and various types of ultrasound, not as a diagnostic um, tool, but as an interventional tool, is coming back around and I'm like, you know, chiropractors and PTs have been using that crap for decades. And, um, you know, we debunked that 20 years ago and now I see it coming back around as like this new thing and it's not new. It's been around for a long time, but I guess the point is that, yeah. So saying something provocative, um, tends to get a lot of attention. And so for a while we've been saying that, um, you know, Posture is important, and now we're starting to say posture is not that important. But I think what's important here is there is a, a, a balance of concepts. And so for some people at certain times, posture can be important, right? So if you're post-op day two from a three-level decompression fusion of your lumbar spine, bending over and touching your toes a bunch of times is probably not going to be the best idea in the world, right? it's practical for us to give people neutral spine advice for a couple of weeks, maybe after spine surgery, right? You're trying to minimize extraneous stress on those healing tissues. Makes perfect sense, right? The person who is, you know, working out at the gym five days a week and in very good shape, doesn't need to be running around obsessing over neutral spine because we don't have good evidence to suggest that maintaining neutral spine is going to prevent any kind of back pain from happening. So that's a really important point here. We have to come back to evidence-based thinking and we have to look at the evidence. And when we do, 
we find that there's no evidence to support a lot of those um, assumptions that we've made over the years, particularly about posture. Um, if a posture feels bad, don't do it, right? That's what we should be saying to people. But we shouldn't be, uh, you know, petrifying them by saying that, you know, if you bend over and look at your cell phone, you know, you're going to ruin your neck because that's just not true. We have no evidence for that, right? And people have been doing that with newspapers for 100 years. So before cell phones, it was newspapers, right? And nothing bad happened. And so um, another part to that is really understanding the natural history of diseases of the spine. That's not how you know, a loss of cervical um, lordosis happens, for example. And that's not how a kyphosis develops. That's not what gives you compression fractures. Like understanding the etiology of those things is really important to fact-checking some of the uh, popular ideas that float around. Um, yeah, so that that's that's one thing I would say. And then I think... You know, one thing I did want to go back to just just briefly is you had touched on the idea that pain can be a really personal thing for someone, right? And so if, if people aren't familiar with um, Jerome Grootman, he is an oncologist in Boston, and he wrote a really good New York Times bestseller years ago called The Anatomy of Hope. And in that book, he talks about his experience with back pain. And so the way that I got into PM&R, physiatry, is actually through Jim Rainville. And Jim Rainville was the one spine person that Jerome Grootman went to after 20 years of back pain and was able to get better. And the reason he was able to get better is because Jim Rainville looked at him after he had seen all his scans and heard his entire life story and he said, you're worshiping the volcano god of pain. <laughs> he said, we've got, he said, he said, the volcano god of pain is a selfish god, right? It demands all of your attention. So when you're walking down the street, it requires that you think about it and not the walking or the reason for walking or the purpose in life, right? And so the, the, the analogy here, though, is that with pain, there is ultimately a decision point where only the patient can participate. And that is how much we're willing to invest in seeking some resolution for ourselves. Right. And, and how much we are going to allow the externalized demands of the experience to take from us. And, and I think that that's really important. It's, it's, it's a hard thing to grapple with, but it's in chronic pain situations. I think it's important because again, even if we have a really bad facet, if I've had this going on for five years and I have had neck pain for five years, I have accumulated all kinds of ideas, beliefs, and behaviors 
around my coping strategies for that bad facet and the neck pain that I have, right? And to undo all of that or to start undoing all of that, uh, you know, we really have to be actively involved as a patient. As a really good physiatrist or physician or clinician, we have to be a really good partner in that process. And uh, so that's just another point I wanted to make because, you know, I, I love that volcano got a pain and snapped Jerome Grootman uh, out of out of his um, sort of cyclical thought process that he had maintained for 20 years. And I think it's worth uh, people looking into. Uh, it's a great book. I have it over there as well. Um, and it's probably the one line that I definitely remember throughout the whole book is, is the volcanic God of pain. So it's funny, funny that you mentioned it because whenever somebody comes with back pain, you know, you try all these treatments, you're just like, it's because they're worshiping this boss because they're worshiping the volcanic God of pain. Um, so I, I love yeah. that. I do want to stay on the same path, but diverge a little bit, at least talk about a medication that's known to all of us, right? Which is gabapentin or most more commonly in the brand name, Neurontin, um, used for nerve pain, but I've seen it even prescribed for people with just musculoskeletal pain. About a year ago, I think you were on Twitter and you, you wrote a lot about the possible risks behind gabapentin and maybe why we're overprescribing it. Do you mind just taking us through a little bit about what those tweets were about, right? And, and kind of what your take is on gabapentin and how we should be prescribing it. Yeah, so, you know, gabapentin is a, a, a very bad drug at doing what it's supposed to do. So it's a terrible anti-convulsant medication. Um, and so we don't use it for that reason, which is why it was originally developed. And uh, over the years, we saw that a small percentage of patients with neuropathic pain seemed to respond to it. And so, you know, we began pushing gabapentin for that. Um and then unfortunately, with the uh, epidemic of opioid overuse, we started scrambling to look for alternatives. And gabapentin was high on the list of potential alternatives because it was thought that it was safer and not addictive and potentially useful in pain management. Um, it had been used in multimodal pain management for a while before that point. And so it didn't take much to imagine that this neuropathic agent might be useful in, you know, non-neuropathic states, and we just needed to try it more. And so that's, that's kind of what happened. The, the, the issue is that, and I think the issue I have is that we don't have many great pain medications for people. And instead of owning that reality and being very diligent and scientifically aggressive in seeking out more appropriate options and developing more appropriate options, we are just using kind of uh, crappy medications for that purpose and, and not acknowledging that they have problems. And so what happens is you get... Um, a lot of folks who already have issues with falling, for example, older folks um, or those with neuropathies who were using this medication in, and it can cause um, somnolence and 
um, increased their risk of falls and has indeed done so. And there have been a number of papers about this problem. Um, and so we're creating this sort of iatrogenic issue for people. Um, and I think that's, that's sort of the summary of, of the concern that I have with gabapentin in particular. I do think it can be used in certain cases. Um, and I think that we have to be careful about its overprescription. That's the main issue. Solid. Thanks, Jim, for going over that. You know, it was definitely a yeah. so, somewhat of a selfish question for me because we prescribe it so much. So I definitely just want to get the understanding. But yeah, absolutely. You know, I think more and more of the attendings I work with have this understanding of starting at a low dose, starting it at night to at least hopefully prevent that grogginess. But I do see a lot of providers saying, oh, my God, it's, it's such a low dose. Let's just go up real quick, you know, from 300 to six to nine. Um, you know, even increase that frequency to three times a day. So it is a drug that I see frequently getting up titrated very quickly. Um, so I just appreciate your thoughts on that. Um, so we've almost been going at it for an hour now, uh, Jim, but I do also want to just talk about your career as, as a whole, right? I think a lot of people, as I look on social media, look at you as a very like young leader, especially so early in your career, as much as the work you're doing with Spine and PM&R. But, you know, people may not know that you had a career before medical school, which was being a chiropractor. How was, you know, take us through a little bit of that journey. What made you take that leap from leaving chiropractor, the, that world, and then becoming a medical student, you know, becoming a student again, I should say, which is, I would imagine, a tough thing to kind of think about to say, oh, my God, I'm going to go through four years again and then residency until I become, again, an attending and something that I can do. Uh, without oversight. Yeah, I mean, I've got a, a few friends that I, I stay in touch with who have traveled this this path that I have, and uh, the the um, fortitude that it takes to go back to school after um, having a different kind of degree and then a practice in most cases uh, is is um, is is rather large, and so. Yeah, I mean, I was a chiropractor. I went to chiropractic school. This was the period when I was still being hospitalized intermittently. Um, I missed a semester in college because of uh, surgery. Um, I had two more surgeries while I was in college. Um, and I had some ongoing issues that took another seven years or so after that to resolve. And um, after the initial surgery. And so... Um, Partly because of that and, and because of some good experiences with chiropractors in my family um, friend circle, I saw that as a viable entry point into musculoskeletal care. In retrospect, it did allow me to focus in on history and physical exam and behavior change questions because that's, that's all the interventions we had, right? Couldn't prescribe meds, couldn't do injections. Um, and so, you know, we couldn't work on an inpatient setting in a meaningful sense. And so if you don't have those things, you have to really try to hone your skills elsewhere. And so for that reason, it was a very good primer for PM&R. Um, I don't do manipulative therapies or treatment really anymore. Um, 
I value a lot of the people in that community who have gone on to do research. So the chiropractic and more so the physical therapy community has done a really nice job of training researchers um, to do important work in musculoskeletal care. And I think that um, I, I, I know through the RMSTP program, the Rehabilitation Medicine Scientist Training Program at AAP, they're trying to produce more PM&R physicians that can do that work and have done a really nice job. But that's crucial because we have a lot of interventions and therapies that we're using out there that are not yet appropriately researched. And the evidence is very thin for them, right? And it's on us to do the work and to find out what is working for people and what is not. And then, um, you know, that would be good evidence-based care. And so that's, um, all of that thinking was involved in me moving back towards medicine because I, I did go spend time with Jim Marineville in Boston when he was still in practice. He stopped, he retired um, just a couple of years ago, but when he was still in practice, he had this really successful um, spine program at New England Baptist Hospital and um, worked closely with PTs um, and it was, it was very exercise based um, and he was kind of the person who people saw when they were at the end of the road and no one had any more solutions for them. And so he would sort of take care of those people and, and do a really great job with them. Um, and so I saw that and it inspired me and I could see myself doing that. And I also realized that in order to have more impact with what I thought was good musculoskeletal medicine, um, I needed more cultural authority and I needed a position where people would hear me more than if I was a chiropractor. And so that was a big reason for going back. Um, it was a long road. Yeah, yeah. I just finished nine years of this. So, yeah, I mean, four years of chiropractic plus a master's degree and then three years out of chiropractic school working um, two different jobs in healthcare and then going back to medical school in nine years. And here I am. So finally, um, <laughs> finally out of the incubator. About time, man. About time. Well, let me let me ask yeah. you this real quick, right? So obviously with TikTok, Instagram, there's a lot of videos out there with chiropractors, you know, doing neck cracks, back cracks, using different modalities. And unfairly, I think they've been mistreated, right, by 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 the large population out there by saying, I would never go to a chiropractor. I've even had patients say this to me that I would never touch it with a 10-foot pole, especially as they're coming in, you know, uh, for a pain consult. What do you advise patients to know before going to a chiropractor? Are there any questions that they should ask? Are there any qualifications that they should look for? Yeah, I mean, some of the things that I, I, I think I need to say um, may not be popular with everyone, but I, you know, I don't think that spinal manipulation has a big role in the management of musculoskeletal conditions. Uh, we've, we've been studying this for decades and it's just, 
you know, fairly mediocre, like most things that we try. Um, so it's not in my algorithm even for the treatment of patients in our spine clinic. Um, but nonetheless, having said that there are certain chiropractors out in the community who I know that are delivering really high quality musculoskeletal care just without medicines and without interventions. And they are people I would be comfortable and have sent folks to who the, the thing that chiropractors and PTs have, um, that's really instrumental to good care from a programmatic standpoint is they have a, a lot of touch points with patients, right? They have more repetition where they spend time with patients um, in, in ways that it's really hard for physicians to. And because of that, folks who need um, that kind of guidance as they're developing new beliefs and behaviors about managing with you know the pain that they have, uh, that can be a really crucial resource to, to rely on. Um, and so those are the scenarios where I, I, I would utilize it, not specifically for manipulation. I, I don't send people for manipulation. Um, I just don't. In fact, one of my favorite chiropractors out there who's fairly TikTok, TikTok popular is a guy named Aaron Kubal. And uh, Aaron's in Minnesota, and he usually spends his time debunking a lot of the bad ideas out there in the usually uh, sort of manual therapy exercise world but um he doesn't do any manipulation and he's someone that i would uh absolutely send patients to nice i think i think we might have to reach out to aaron and bring him on to the uh onto the pod here to talk about some shop he, so, he would be a you would be a yeah, great guest yeah yeah i, def I definitely follow him on social yeah. so he is good Awesome. Well, man, you just said it's been nine years. You're finishing a fellowship. You have four more days left. By the time this episode is released, you might be on your way over to uh, South Carolina um, and, and starting your new gig there. Why don't you tell the audience what's next for you, what you have in store and what you're excited about? Yeah, so my I, I'm uh, mostly from the Carolinas, uh, Charlotte in particular. My family, my wife's family is all in the Carolinas. And... Um, Dr. Amit Nagpal, who was in San Antonio for a number of years, is now the division chief at the Medical University of South Carolina within the Department of Orthopedics and is developing um, really the first major academic PM&R presence in South Carolina. And it's my honor to go work with that team and help them build a program for PM&R. Um, Matt Sherrier, who was a chief before me at UPMC is there. Uh, he does sports medicine and, um, we have, uh, Renee Rosati who did a NAS fellowship at Emory. Uh, she's there as well. And we're now in the process of developing the inpatient side of things before hopefully pivoting back towards general expansion of the program. Uh, it's, it's really exciting to be in a place that has such a need for what we do as physiatrists and uh, doesn't have access to it. And so being able to go there and build something new and have the ability to influence the culture of that program as it develops is something I'm really excited about. And I get to take my incredible 
Um, what I what I hope is uh, an incredible wealth of knowledge here um, from Pittsburgh at UPMC and take it there to MUSC and see what we can do. I think we're all excited, Jim, because you know one of the things we talked about it gets harder and harder to change your way of thinking, right? The the older you get, the further along in your training you get, right? Because that cup isn't empty anymore, so to speak. And so you having the opportunity to teach, you know, incoming residents and, and younger trainees who are kind of blank slates. Uh, I, I think that that's the perfect opportunity to intervene when it, when it comes to teaching a lot of things that we've been talking about, right? Those words about, you know, engaging the patient or engaging with the patient for behavioral change. Like, what does that mean? Right. Asking the questions, not to just to get the information for the note, but rather to really connect with the patient, to build that relationship with the patient, all the words that you use that we know matter the most. And so with that, the last question that we'd like to ask everybody is, you know, about adding the health back to healthcare. But really, I think a lot what we're talking about is adding the care. But, you know, for, for the sake of staying true to our mission, I'm just going to ask you that question and, and you take it whichever way you want, is how do we put the health back in healthcare? That's a great question. And I think a lot of people across healthcare at different levels are, are being confronted with this question now, not just the clinicians, but the administrators, uh, everyone is aware, you know, that healthcare is in an unhealthy state in America and it's, it's expensive. We're spending more and more every year. Um, it's projected to be nearly 20% of our GDP by 2031 at this point. And we're not getting our return on investment. So despite all of this investment in, in money and time and um, trainees like ourselves, uh, those who are supposed to benefit from it aren't. And to do that differently, I think it really takes more people in positions of influence to try new solutions when it comes to delivering healthcare. We have a lot of understanding about what might work, but when it comes to implementation, that's where we struggle. There's a lot of fear. There's a fear of uncertainty. There's a fear of changing the way we've been doing things. We have to change though. We have to have brave leaders. We have to have people who are inspired to change. And I think that that means, you know, there has to be a different culture that ultimately takes root in a lot of our healthcare systems, um, which is not just our hospital systems and our outpatient settings, but health plans, insurers, they have to do things differently as well. Um, so one way that I think we need to tackle this though, is we do need more clinicians to be involved in the administrative side of healthcare, right? A lot of the decisions that directly affect people who are delivering care need to have more input and um, understanding by those who are delivering that care. And we've, we have lost that over the past few years. And so I think more clinicians who are willing to learn those skills and to 
sit in those meetings and you know develop a voice have to do so additionally and really importantly here patients have to be more involved right the people that are directly affected by all these decisions and the money that's being spent they have to have a voice and that's something we have not done very well if at all Um, and so we've got to engage them and have them um, giving more of their input so that we can understand what their needs are and as we're out there experimenting which is a you know process that's happening right now with different models of care we need their feedback to find out what's working and what's not and adjust accordingly so those are just some of the initial thoughts i have on that thousand percent love it jim thank you so much for coming on to the podcast thanks guys it was my pleasure thanks jim Thanks for listening to another episode of Medicine Redefined. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to check out some of the additional resources in the show notes. Please also check out our social media platforms where you can find more content like this. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at MedRedefined. We want to take a moment to thank our team for the production of this podcast, specifically Ethan Ju and Haritha Yipri. Lastly, please remember the important disclaimer that everything in this podcast is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nor should it be construed as medical advice. No physician-patient relationship is formed, and anything discussed in this podcast does not represent the views of our employers. We recommend that you seek the guidance of your personal physician regarding any specific health-related issues. However, if you enjoy the show, please be sure to subscribe, review, and share with anyone who you would think will gain value from this as well. Until next time, thank you for listening.